Support for Real Paint comes from Genentech, a member of the Roche Group, who pursues groundbreaking science to discover and develop medicines for people with breast cancer. Learn more at gene.com. That's G-E-N-E.com. Hey, Real Pink listeners. Today, I'm excited to have a special episode for you. Guest host Suzanne Stone, the former executive director of Susan G. Komen, Greater Central and East Texas, interviews Nancy Brinker, Susan G. Komen's founder, who helped to ignite the breast cancer movement. This is a great interview and one that I think you'll really enjoy. And here's Suzanne. It's going to be more than a race. It's going to be an event for survivorship. It's going to be an event where people can talk to each other openly and without shame and embarrassment, share their journeys. And that's really what it's going to be. The beginning of anything is always the hardest. The first day of school, the new job, the day you get your driver's license, the day you get the paperwork back from the IRS letting you know that you have achieved nonprofit status. Nancy Brinker knows all about beginnings and endings. Her life is truly storybook, turning tragedy into the most recognizable, influential, and largest breast cancer nonprofit in the world. I'm Suzanne Stone, and this is the More Than Pink podcast. Nancy Brinker almost doesn't need an introduction. She took a devastating diagnosis and created Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. She has empowered millions of women to know their normal, get screened, funded groundbreaking and life-saving research, not to mention changing the meaning of a color. Tell me about Susan. Well, she was simply the most wonderful, beautiful, sweet person, all in one package. She was uh, my older sister, three years older than I. She was my best friend, and she was um, always wonderful to me. She included me in things. She taught me things. She was proud of me. We had very different talents. She sort of decided what needed to be done, and I was usually the one who was appointed to do them, um, including chasing away disinterested or uninteresting boyfriends, um, you know, making sure that whatever it was that she needed to do was (laughs) (laughs) well-oiled. And that included having, uh, breaking her curfew or coming in a little late and doing, I mean, she was just so cute. And everyone loved her. She had a wonderful group of friends, tended to be shy, but in fact, there was a very strong core there. And um, you can imagine the... uh, and, and we did so many things together. One of the very first things we ever did together in a charitable way that I remember, because our mother was always, both of our parents were always into doing what we could for the community. My father was a very hardworking business, small businessman, and mother was very supportive of him, and she was part of a family that had been in Peoria since the late 1890s, middle 1890s. So... We came from a very solid, solid family. She had six aunts and uncles who were really more like her brothers and sisters, but they were my great uncles, but she didn't have any brothers and sisters. She was an only child, but it was part of a big family. We celebrated together. We did everything together. And, you know, so as time went on and as Susie 
as we grew older, and I went to the University of Illinois. My sister went to the University of Missouri, and she loved living in the Midwest, and so she married a fellow from the university. They met. Anyway, by the time she was 33, well, it was determined that they couldn't have children, so they adopted two children. And when she was 33, a living back in Peoria, she was a part-time model. She was a um, full-time volunteer. She There was hardly a cause she wasn't involved in and loved it. And um, that's when she developed breast cancer. And it was so traumatic for her because she was enough older than me to come from a different, little bit different generation where, you know, body beautiful was everything and this was considered a very mutilating disease that usually had a bad ending. Um, mammography was not in usage then. Remember, we had no computers, no faxes, no emails, uh, no capacity to really communicate except by phone or mail. And so... Though we had resources in our community, you can imagine how difficult it was to start digging around and finding who should she be seen by. I was in Texas at the time, working hard away at my first sort of professional position. I was in the executive training program at Neiman Marcus, and I knew a lot about MD Anderson and had volunteered for some of their events and knew that that I had to get my sister there. I just knew it. She was very, very reticent about going and preferred to stay at home with our family physician and the surgeon who treated her and told her she was cured after he had removed the first lump in her breast and done immediate reconstruction 10 days later um, because he really thought he had. It wasn't a large lesion, but it was obviously a very uh, metastatic uh, symptom of what she was developing. So the the time came when we needed to you know, make a decision, and she was very slow about it, and it started metastasizing. And then we took her to Mayo. She decided she would go to Mayo's, and they sort of gave, did an oophorectomy, which was removal of ovaries, knowing that so many times when young women developed aggressive disease, it was usually estrogen positive, and um, nothing really worked. She never really had any good news. And so finally got her to MD Anderson, but it was very late. She was a stage four breast cancer patient by the time we got her there. And she was, you know, the next 18 months to 20 months were extremely devastating for all of us. She had to spend a lot of time down there. They used every experimental therapy they possibly could. And and she died August 4th, 1980, at the age of 36. Um, and it was it was probably the saddest, most devastating thing in my life, because oftentimes a sister is like a second mother, and we had the best mother in the whole world and father, but we were a very, very close family, so we were all very devastated, as were her children, who were six and ten at the time, and her husband. And right before she died, very diminished, with a very, she fought so hard, uh, agreed to therapy all the way to the end, which none of it was to work and later we were to find out why because none of it was effective against the kind of a disease she had mm. um she asked me if i would cure breast cancer and if nobody should ever have to suffer from it she asked me that if when she got better i would work with her to do a variety of things to make sure that the whole treatment process was better she could never say when i was die she could never say when i die but she used to say when I get better, knowing she wasn't getting better. 
And I found that to be fascinating and very little that any of us could do about it. We went to visit our rabbi, and he gave us sort of a set um, words to say to her, to make her know that we were empathetic, you know, that we were there for her, but we never tried to convince her to talk about dying. That, that just, you know, what, why? It was so clear what was happening. And um, I told her I would do everything I could, no matter how long it took, even if I did it for the rest of my life. And um, uh, I just didn't know at the time that it would take the rest of my life. But it's been an amazing journey, and I'm very proud that in her name so much good has happened uh, over the years. It's really incredible when you think about that simple conversation that you had at such a, a traumatic time. Um, she clearly was the core, you know, of, of your family, your best friend. What impact that promise has made for millions, millions of women across the globe? Well, you're nice to say, and I hope it's right. I think it has made <laughs> Absolutely. enormous impact in education, awareness, but more than that, just cultural, because we were so, you know, we were a society then of people who didn't talk about, it was the big C. It wasn't cancer and it wasn't breast cancer. In fact, you couldn't use the word breast in Texas in the newspapers and newsprint, radio or TV at the time. So the very first event we had by 1982, we had to call it an event for women's cancers. Wow. Um, it was just shocking, you know. And, and, and in fact, after we named the foundation, Susan G. Komen Foundation for the Advancement of Education, Research, and Treatment, there were some people who didn't want to put their names on the invitation because they felt it was embarrassing or the husband felt it was embarrassing. I mean, it's just a very different time. Very different time. Yeah. What I think is so interesting, Nancy, is a lot of people probably make a lot of promises to family members, right, or friends who are at the end of life. Mm -hmm. But the difference f for this one and for you is that you've kept your promise. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's a that's a huge thing. Um, certainly, certainly impactful. So you talk about the first race, that first grant of twenty eight thousand mm -hmm. dollars. Yeah. It was our first event. Yeah. What were, the, was, what were the challenges around that? Well, it was, I didn't know what to do, because if you looked around, um, we knew we weren't going to get support from the government, which everyone tried to get, because they thought we were a group of ladies who were, what ladies do, have luncheons and teas and not really realize the enormity of the problem. That's number one. Number two, though the war on cancer had been announced in 1971, um, the total amount of funding for breast cancer research was only something like 28 to $30 million. And there was so little known about, you know, the biology of, of the tumor. About, and we were very, very lucky with her oncologist and physician, Dr. George Blumenschein, who'd headed up the breast center at MD Anderson in those years, had steered us to Dr. Mill McGuire um, from San Antonio, I think you probably know, the largest breast cancer conference in the world now there uh, was really Bill McGuire's inspiration. And he became our first, the head of our first scientific review committee. And it was because of his steering us, this small group on that committee, into taking the small dollars we had at the time and only funding the very, very best research which would lead us to the conclusions which have brought us so much therapy and treatment today. Uh, that is that it was basically a genetic kind of a disease and that the biology had to be clearly understood, the pathways 
of how a tumor grows, how it expresses, uh, the genetic components, uh, everything um, was based on those very early years and our commitment to funding what we believed was the best science. And, of course, we were the first people really doing it. There were some groups in Washington and people trying to do it, but we were the very first people who had this kind of organization and grew very quickly. Um, And, of course, people thought we were bigger than we were, and that advantaged us to make them think we were bigger than we were because we wanted to have the impact. And, um, indeed, we did, and we were very excited about it. Uh, We felt, we really felt, uh, privileged uh, by having these affiliate groups that sprang up very quickly. And then we had this Race for the Cure. That was the first sort of walk-run event of its kind. Uh, people were just beginning to start running and walking and doing all those races and marathons. And everyone said, well, why, why in the world would anybody want to do a race when they don't even want to talk about it? And I said, because it's going to be more than a race. It's going to be an event for survivorship. It's going to be an event where people can talk to each other openly and without shame and embarrassment, share their journeys. And that's really what it's going to be, as much as it's a, it's a walk run. The other side also was that our very first event that we had was a big luncheon event with Betty Ford that year where we realized we really had to bring in important people to talk about their journey with breast cancer and what they were going to do and could do. And then we realized not only did we have to educate the leaders in our country to start talking about it, but we really had to have a grassroots movement. And that's how the race was born. And that grassroots movement um, became nationwide and even now globally. Yes, and um, so it's been um, it's been quite a journey, and we've you know since that time we have many many affiliates throughout the United States, partners in different parts of the world. We funded uh, not just events but projects and community health and science in over thirty countries. We've been part of global um, uh, global organizations and partnerships where we've worked through the WHO, we've worked through uh, the Joint Distribution Fund of the Jewish Charities in, this, in Central Europe. We've done projects in, um, with large corporate sponsors in China, Saudi Arabia, all over. And actually, the problems are still very much the same. We've worked in Africa. We've worked everywhere. And um, still, the problems and the issues and the fear is the same, except that we've made a lot of progress. Um, so... Anyway, that's that's kind of that side of the story. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that's really interesting about the way that that Komen is set up is that it is it still is that grassroots effort, and you have these local um, that that very local impact in all of these affiliates making that local impact, really understanding what's happening in their community mm-hmm. and focusing. You know, most of their dollars there, but then there's this research component, mm-hmm. which is that end game. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's fascinating when you look at um, where you started, and today being the the largest private non fund uh, private nonprofit funder of research of breast cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, almost a billion dollars, which is incredible, and you've you know, the organization has really managed to achieve some pretty groundbreaking things. Yeah. Well, we I think 
overall, we've given about $2 billion of support to communities throughout America, and then about a billion dollars to research. You're right. And when we talk about the impact of that research, it's, it's, you know, it's not just about the lab and mm-hmm. um, funding anybody who asks for money. Mm-hmm. I think there's really some strategic placement of those research dollars, and it's really made a difference. That 38% um, 38% decline in mortality mm-hmm. since 1989. Komen funding certainly played a role in that. Yeah, that's been... I think in the 90s we made a lot of progress, started to, um, though I think in the 2000s, and I think particularly the last five or six years, we've made enormous gains in therapy. Um, though immunotherapy hasn't been as quite as effective in breast cancer as it has in other cancers that are um, really caused by mutations in genes from environmental factors, uh, breast cancer is really more of a genetic disease, you know, a familial genetic disease. Um, but nonetheless, we have had great understanding. We have <clears throat> created some therapies, drugs, agents that have been very helpful in keeping metastatic patients alive longer, but we have a tremendous amount of work in that area to do. Absolutely. And when we talk about, or you talk about that, that family disease, unfortunately, that disease did not stop in your family with, with Susie. No. No, it, it, no, I developed the disease uh, just a few years after she desi- uh, died. I think we probably had very similar disease. I had BRCA I later was to find out that I was BRCA positive. And then we, uh, you know, uh, we, um, we've also had other people we know and then we're related to who've had uh, breast cancer. So, uh, no, it's never, sometimes it's, sometimes it's very genetic, sometimes it isn't. What do you see as the future for not just Komen, but for for breast cancer and that, that continuing conversation that we're having from a research side, from an advocacy side in our communities? Um, you're out there all the time, still working. Well, I think I, I see one thing. I think there's a, there's a need now for great collaboration of cancer groups. There are too many cancer groups. And... Um, that is that we need to pool our resources and focus in a strategic way on the issues that are important to a lot of people who are looking for longer lives. Uh, Most cancers are genetically based and DNA-based. So in the future, they may be described as DNA-based cancers that express in the breast or the prostate or whatever, but they don't originate there. It's not as if it's something unique that just happens. It's generally brought on by a genetic mutation that is brought on, that is, you know, progressed by different factors. And so I think as we learn more about that, we will identify the disease that way. And it will be maybe called rather than by body part, it will be described by the mutation that it is. That would be a big development from a cancer point of view and and certainly change the way we talk about it. That's right. That's exactly right. So I want to ask you one more question. Why October 
and why pink? Well, October, because it was my sister's birthday. She was, Halloween was her birthday, and October was always a fun month in our lives. And I just started thinking as we started going and we saw, uh, collaborated with some other organizations, and one of the pharmaceutical companies became involved that we named it Breast Cancer Awareness Month because October just started, you know, it was the beginning of the year. The color pink I selected because it was her favorite color. <laughs> it was that simple. <laughs> and what and a then gr- it caught on, reason. you know, and others started copying us and using the ribbon and, and everything. But it was our, it was her favorite color. Well, her favorite color and her birth month are certainly uh, massively important. Uh, yeah. Celebrated. All across the United States, you would have probably never guessed that NFL players would be wearing pink. (laughs) That's very true. (laughs) And I think, um, you know, um, not just the NFL, but all kinds of Major League Baseball. And more than that, just campaigns that people have had. And I think it's very gratifying because I think it's wonderful. There's been a lot of color a lot of criticism about, well, you know, it's all happiness put on top of it. But I don't really think that's true. I think pink is powerful, and I think people celebrate it because there is awareness and understand also that there's hope. You know, you can't always surround people with lack of hope and think that's going to help anything. People need to know that there's an organization, a family of people, a community of people who are having some of the same issues and who are working at the same on the same level you know, to do things. And when they see that pink ribbon, that's exactly mm-hmm. what they think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They absolutely exactly. think of that. Mm, that's right. So what would you say to somebody who is currently going through breast cancer treatment right now, maybe listening to this episode and kind of looking for that hope you were talking about? Um, well, I think that I would say, um, um, look, um, Join us. Find some area that you can work in that is going to be particularly um, joyful to you in that, or rather meaningful to you, and then just try very hard to stick with us. It's Things don't happen overnight, but it's really important that people have an opportunity to know that they are wanted and needed, and their direction is um, is, is really important. Their passion for this is really important. A promise kept has turned into hundreds of thousands of lives saved. It's changed the color pink from simply signifying that it's a girl to empowering people to share their story of breast cancer. How amazing it would be if all promises had that kind of power. Thank you, Nancy. And a big thank you to iHeartMedia for making each and every podcast you'll hear right here happen. Thanks, Mike, for making sure the knobs are turned just right. Thanks to the Komen Austin team who helps every day make a difference in Central Texas. Susan G. Komen Austin is an affiliate of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation. If you need resources, information, or just have a comment about this or any of the episodes that you listen to, reach out. You can find us at podcast at comanaustin.org. And of course, visit us at comanaustin.org. 
We'll talk to you next time. And remember, always be more than pink. Thanks to Genentech for supporting Real Pink. To find out more about Genentech's latest advancements, visit gene.com. That's G-E-N-E dot com.